This is episode 161 of the Beyond the Food Show, and today we're talking all things sugar addiction with a sugar addiction specialist, Bitten Johnson. Stay tuned. My name is Stephanie Dodier, clinical nutritionist. I reversed my diagnosis of anxiety, depression, adrenal fatigue, and obesity by going beyond the food. I can tell you one thing, that willpower, discipline, and deprivation aren't the permanent solution to transforming your relationship to food. So how do you leave overeating, emotional eating, food craving, and binging behind you so you have the food freedom to achieve all of your goal and be happy now? As a top 25 alternative health podcast in the world, this is the Beyond the Food Show. Hey ladies, welcome back to 161. And today episode, it's an interview. I don't do as much these days of interview because I have so much to tell you myself. But this one I had to bring forward to you. It is a very in-depth conversation about addiction in general. And we're narrowing our focus around sugar addiction and with someone that I met earlier in 2018 in Spain when I was speaking at a conference there and I fell in love with her. My jaw just dropped on the ground when I heard her seminar on addiction because she is completely aligned with me and she's like the pre-work that you have to do if you are an addict and that's the question that I want you to really ponder here. Are you an addict? Are you a sugar addict or an addict to anything? Because I find these days that in the world of nutrition, health, and food philosophy, there is a lot of people that are self-labeling themselves as an addict. And I'll share a little bit more on that in a bit, but they're labeling themselves as addict, which is not really the case. We're mixing up the interpretation of what it is to be an addict versus example, in our case, what it is to be emotionally consuming sugar to make feel better. And Bitten will explain more of that during the interview. But I thought that was an essential topic that we needed to talk about. And I want to frame a little bit the show here to say that this is also a very personal and vulnerable open heart episode because we are sharing my journey through addiction. So Bitten and me have been using her assessment method over the last couple months for my own journey and she's done the complete assessment on me. It's a three-hour process and I've allowed her to entirely share it with you. So it's very personal. I am totally cool doing that because I know it's going to help many of you. And that's part of my journey, right? When you go through the process of healing yourself from whatever, when the healing and the scar is completely gone and it's completely closed, you are able to talk about that quote unquote problem, addiction, grieving, whatever the thing was with an open heart without judgment or shame around it or 
pain around it. And that's where I am in my journey. That's why I'm able to share that. But at the same time, I wanted to frame it with you so you can understand that it is very personal and vulnerable for me to share that with you. And I also want to say that this was a video interview and there is some slides that were shared as well. So if you go to the show notes, stephaniedoza.com slash 161, you will have the link to the video interview. We were actually broadcasting on Facebook that you can watch the slide as well. So I think Bitten and me did a great job describing the slide, but if you really want to see particularly my assessment and my curb, as she call it, you'll have to go on the video on the show note to watch this. Also, before we get into the topic, I wanted to make two quick announcements for you. We have launched our own assessment tool on our website, stephaniedoze.com. It's the Food Freedom Score. So it's about understanding where you are on the food freedom scale, right? On your ability to be at peace with food and also with your body and to be able to live that life where you feel great about who you are, what you're eating right now, your relationship to food and your relationship to your body. So it's about assessing that and we call it the food freedom score. So you can go right to my website, stephaniedoze.com, and you'll see right there when you land on the website, the get your score. I think that's how they called it on the website. And alongside to that, we're launching also the Food Freedom Challenge, which is a group challenge. I've never done that. I've never done a challenge. Well, I've done challenge for myself, but I've never actually ran a challenge. I don't know why but I've never done it. So I've decided to try it to see if you guys like it and if you find it beneficial. So November the 5th to the 30th will be our first ever food freedom challenge. It's going to be 25 days. And inside of there, you will have a private Facebook community. I'll do some live Q and A's. You will also have a complete training package on the going to beyond the food method. We are going to give you access to claim your food freedom program inside of that and all the videos and all the exercise, but we're going to progress through those four module video course together. So we're all going to start on November 5th and then we're going to practice for four days together. Then on the fifth day, the next sets of video will be delivered to all of your inbox We're all going to watch it and then we're all going to do the homework together, share what we're finding in the Facebook community. I'll do some live Q&A, answer your question. So it's the concept of community behind my program, Claim Your Food Freedom. So I hope you can join us. You have until November the 4th to register for that. The link is also in the show notes and I hope to see you there. So... On to the interview today about sugar addiction. I also wanted to make it clear that through the assessment that we did with Bitten, I was clinically assessed as an addict. And I've known that. This is not something that is new to me. But I wanted to share with you my own perspective on the 
status of addict or the status of addiction, because I think it's important to see another point of view. So if you look at the medical term or the medical assessment of addiction is somebody that uses a substance that has negative effect on their life, which clearly many of the substances that I've used have had negative effect. There's other substances that I've used that have not had negative effect, but that doesn't, to me, label me or make me a quote-unquote addict. I find that when we label things, when we say, I am a, anyway, for me and the way that I practice is very disempowering. It's like, I've seen that many times in people that are my friends and my patients that once they're declared an addict, they just sit on there saying, well, there's nothing I can do. I'm powerless. I have the gene of addiction. I have the addiction thing and there's nothing I can do. It's stronger than me. And for me, that's very disempowering. That's why you'll probably have never heard me talk about being an addict or having an addiction because I find it disempowering. I find that when you use this piece of information that your brain, yes, does have a capacity to be addicted, but good information, good to know, but it's also about what can you learn from this and how can you move forward from there? For me, it's about surrendering to who we are. And if addiction is part of our life, it's about surrendering to our addiction. It's actually how the going to beyond the food method was born, was born out of me surrendering to who I was, getting to know who I was and surrendering to who I was. It was about, yes, me hitting my rock bottom that forced me to look at another possibility beyond addiction. Because in the past, I thought I was an addict and (laughs) there was nothing I could do. And I had to shift this to then see the possibility. And it's about me seeing my darkness and shining light on them so I can see what was possible for me. So I wanted to make sure that you understood that because even with Bitten, her perspective is somewhat different than me. We still get at it from the same way and heal it and treat it from the same perspective, but we have slightly different point of view on that, yet we get to the same place, healing and helping people with sugar addiction. So are you ready for this? Let's roll out the interview. So welcome in everyone, and I want you guys to be aware that I'm sharing the space right now with Bitten Johnson, a friend and an expert in sugar addiction. Today we're going to discuss what is sugar addiction and what we can do, and we're going to get into the great detail, plus at the end you're going to see my own journey with addiction and sugar addiction in particular because I've given Bitten the opportunity to share all my results because she did assess me and and we're going to share all of that towards the end of our time together. But first off, I want to introduce who I have as my co-host for today. So Bitten Johnson is a registered nurse, an addict slash sugar certified, and is also a sugar addiction specialist and pioneer 
in Sweden. And we've met actually in an international conference that we went to in Spain because that's her area of where she's rocking the stage is mainly in Europe. So you may not know her because it's kind of her first introduction to here in North America. So I'm very happy to have her here. She's worked in the field of addiction for over 22 years, and she's founded a unique holistic treatment model for sugar and flour addiction. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So welcome, Bitten. Thank you, Stephanie. It's wonderful to be with you. Gotta love technology. She's in Sweden. I'm in Canada and Quebec, and we're broadcasting all around the world together. So very excited. So let's get jump right into this topic here. What is sugar addiction and what is not sugar addiction? And that's a very open question. Go for it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'd like to share some PowerPoints with you to just look at, you know, when I talk about the brain and addiction, because first of all, I want to say that we know today that sugar and flour can act as a psychoactive drug on some people's reward center. Not everybody that likes sugar and sweets is going to be an addict. And you can eat a lot of sugar and sweet and not have a lot of consequences. And you might not be an addict. But some people lose control and then the addiction starts. And then, you know, it's a very, very severe illness and it's very hard to get out of it. So many of us, you know, I'm a sugar addict, and so many of us, we feel a lot of shame that we can't get our act together. Why don't you have any self-discipline? Why don't you do as I tell you? Why don't you just stop? So we keep doing this. We hide, we lie, we sneak, and we feel awful, miserable. And actually, what I like to tell you guys is that this is a biochemical problem in our brain, and it gives a lot of consequences physically, psychologically, socially and spiritually, but we are not weak-willed people. It's not about willpower. And that's what I like to tell everybody. And that's what I fell in love with you when I heard you speak at the conference we were together, because most people who talk about addiction talk it into the context of something is wrong and something's got to be fixed and you're weak, and you have no willpower. That's the message we hear all the time. And I love your approach, and that's why I brought you on to the Going to Beyond the Food Project, and that's why you're here today teaching, because your approach is based out of love, not fear. So kudos for you for doing that. Yeah, and I also say, you know, I work with salutogenesis, which means adding healthy things to our life. I want us all to be happy, joyous, and free, and not be locked in a jail with our addiction. Because once we understand our addicted brain, we can see it as a gift. That sensitive brain we have is a gift. We are very special people. Take away the shame. Just go for it. And here's what i like to share with you. Go for it. Yes. So for those that maybe I'm going to turn this into a podcast. If you're listening right now on the podcast, know that the video version of this podcast is available in the show notes right now of this podcast, stephaniedozi.com slash 161. So you can actually see the slide, but Bitten will do a great job at describing visually what we're seeing on the screen right now. So if you're listening in the audio version. Okay. So I like to say to you, welcome to the world of sugar flower addiction. It's a controversial subject 
but I like to help you to understand why this is. And we are so many people all over the world that struggle with this, have struggled with this, and we scratch our head and don't know what to do. And let me take you on a little tour in your brain. This is a very short tour, but it explains what's going on. So first I like to talk about the triune brain. You know that our brain is actually three brains, three different types of brain. And they are serial connected, like a computer that is connected to other computers. But you know what? The interesting part with this brain is that sometimes it doesn't cooperate. And I'm convinced that any sugar addict that is listening to this right now will say, yeah, that's me. I want to do a certain thing, but I do the opposite. And I beat on myself because I do things that I really don't want to do. And you sit there wondering, how did this happen? And this is what I'm going to explain to you, why this happens. So first, we have a part in our forehead that's called the prefrontal cortex. And you know what? That part is not matured until we are around 25 years of age. And here is something that I really like to point out to anyone that thinks they have a sugar addiction problem, that sugar is a very, very legal drug. It is absolutely everywhere. So if you look back, you know, I'm sure that you got sweets and all kinds of goodies when you were a little kid. So, of course, you didn't have established, you know, a prefrontal cortex that's functioning. So how in the whole world could you know that you actually were given a drug if you had the inherited sensitivity for sugar and flour, which is all about? Because we talk about three things. First, you need to have a predisposition. That's something you get from your parents genetically. We know that today. And then you have to get the stuff. Like if you were in a country that they don't serve alcohol, you cannot become an alcoholic. But think about sugar and flour. It is everywhere and it is all the time, every day. So, you know, the stuff, you got that in you, the drug, so to speak. And nobody knew when you were a baby or a little kid that you have this sensitivity. The third is that we have to also be in a society where this is accepted in a way. And if anything is accepted, it is sugar and flour and sweets and sodas and candies and all that. So I like to explain it in the way that some of us are born with a very high sensitivity. That means that we don't need so much of exposure. We get addicted really quickly. Some of us, might have a very low sensitivity, but we get high exposure. I'm sure you understand what I mean with that, that we got a lot of junk food as very, very small children. So that got us all started. But anyway, the prefrontal cortex, here we have some very interesting features, you know. If our prefrontal cortex doesn't work very well, you have a hard time with impulse control. You know the thing you say, today I'm not going to eat any junk. Somebody comes around and said, do you want an ice cream? And you said, yes, without even knowing that you were thinking. You don't know why you answered yes, because your impulse control in the brain didn't work the way it should. We get a loss of strategic thinking here. We are not able to see all the consequences of our actions. We lose our planning skills. We have a severe decision-making we have a severe risk assessment, poor judgment. We're losing our ability for self-discipline. I thought when I was active in my illness, I thought that everybody had somehow gotten self-discipline from some kind of store or something. 
And I had none, and I did not know where to go and get it. I had very, very poor self-discipline. Today, I know exactly how I can work on my own self-discipline, and I can work and help others. Think about it. Like if Stephanie and I lived closer together, which I would love, and we would hang a lot, and she would ask me, do you want to go to the movie with me? I would say, yes, absolutely. When? And we would decide the day. And then I wouldn't just forget about that or say to her an hour before, no, I don't want to go to the movie. I wouldn't break that commitment. You see what I mean? I would really keep it. But if I tell myself, today I'm not going to eat this and I'm going to take a walk, I break that all the time. This is what I'm talking about. So the enemy is inside me when I lose my capacity in my prefrontal cortex. And you know what, guys? Here is where addiction starts hitting us first. And remember what I said. You need to be 25 years old for this to work. You're not matured before. And you started probably eating sugar and flour long, long before your 25th year's age. So this is important to understand. And then we have the reptilian brain or the survival brain. In this part, we don't have any language. This is instincts. This is like instinct to eat, to reproduce, to fight, to flight. This is a very rigid. Think about a crocodile. How in the whole world would you start training a crocodile to go heal? You can't. So this part is obsessive, impulsive, paranoid. I used to think when I went or had to buy my stash of chocolate and ice cream and all that kind of stuff, you know, I thought that everybody would see on me that I was an addict and buying loads and loads. So I had to go to five different stores. Talk about being paranoid. Who in the whole world would walk around out there checking what I was shopping? Nobody, of course not. But that's the way the sick brain goes when you're an active addict. You become very ritualistic. You know, you're going to eat a certain food in a certain space, in a certain chair, in, certain, in front of a certain TV program. That's very obsessive. That's not healthy. And also this part is like a crocodile that gets its food, you know. Don't take it away from me. Very ego. We don't like to share with other people. And I think it's funny when people say, well, I eat this and that because I'm lonely. And I said, no way. You make sure you're lonely to eat your junk. That's the way it works. Uh, a lot of people have a lot of ideas what addiction is. But I always say, well, think about it. Everything you know, turn it upside down, and then you probably come right. So put the wagon behind the horse and not in front of the horse. And this way of thinking that addiction is caused by something is uh, as I say, you know, chasing the golden goose. You will always try to analyze why am I doing this and why and why. And forgetting that the drug has a tremendous power over your reward system. So you have to start thinking in a different way and think, wait a minute. It is because a part of my brain absolutely demands the drug. That's why I do so many crazy things. That's why I hide, I lie, I sneak. And so you have to turn right around. So this one also has another thing that's interesting to think about. It cannot learn from mistakes. When I read that and studied this, it was such a relief because I was thinking all the time, why do I keep doing the crazy things I do? 
So there's a lot more to learn about that, but we're going to keep going. So we used to say about this reptilian brain, it's so far from the head, it doesn't even know there is a head. So I want you to think about that. When this thing is ruling your life, you're in bad trouble. It can overrule the mammal brain and the neocortex. And for addicts, this is causing the biggest confusion ever. Who am I? Why am I like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? And this is what I like to help you see. When is your destructive part, you know, the one that I call the red dog? When is that acting out and destroying your life? And how can I help you to see your beautiful, wonderful, gorgeous blue dog, the healthy part of you that you need to grow? And here's where some people like Stephanie comes in that has tools and oodles and oodles of tools to help you develop your blue dog. So this is what I like for people to understand. The mammal brain, the feeling brain, there are some things we need to understand about that. It keeps tracks of the outside world. Here is we have bonding. We love to bond. It protects us. But it also wants reward, you know, survival reward. It likes to avoid pain at all costs. It's emotionally controlled. You know, we can lose totally control over our emotions and they can run berserk. And it can overtake our senses and our reasoning. And here is one very important area. It's reinforcement. And I tell you, the industry, they know this very well because they connect sound, colors, and all kinds of stuff to your favorite food so that we're like a little rat in a maze that we knew that in the left-hand corner there was food yesterday or goodie. So we're going to go back to the left corner all the time. And that's why they have like the ice cream truck and the McDonald's M and the colors and everything, because they know that this part of our brain is going to lit up and say, I want it, I want it. So this is where we deal with healing this part of the brain. And then we have the neocortex, the thinking brain. It's the big brain. It's five-sixths of the brain's whole mass or pulp. Here we have abstract thinking, strategies, planning. We're solution-oriented. We have our language here, senses information, reasoning, empathy, love, and spirituality. As we can call it, all the higher functions. But you know, if you have this crocodile or the reptile being hooked on sugar and you are caught up in this web of just dieting, eating, losing control, how in the whole world are you going to develop this part of your brain? So please, if you listen to this, don't feel ashamed if you're stuck in this rut. There is many, many tools today to get out of the rut and live happy, joyous and free. And there you have my beautiful little picture of the red and the blue dog. So I like to be like Cesar Milan, you know, the dog whisperer on little red addict's dog. And I want to scare them down in the basket and they're going to stay there and help you grow this beautiful blue dog. So that's what I wanted to say about the brain, Stephanie. So if we sum it up in something short, we have genetic... Yes. That increase our chances to become addicted to sugar and flour. Yes. Right? Processed form of sugar. From active substances. Yes. Yes. And then from there, our environment 
Absolutely. Triggers this expression yes. of the addiction. Did I understand this right? Yes. And then our brain interacts in five different layers that you've shown us to create all the patterns associated with our addiction. Absolutely. So for many people, you know, first comes the addiction, the drug-seeking behavior and the loss of control and the inner fight where you try to control this, but you can't. And then comes the outer things, you know, when you start losing control over many of the issues in your life. You choose to be home alone to eat because the drug is stronger than your loving friends. And you start using a lot of money on this and you start becoming obsessed with weight, body, training, and you start hide more and lie more. And you, maybe you become, you know, sick, but you won't tell that you're sick because you feel ashamed over your eating. It's like with alcohol, you can't hide if you're drunk because you smell and you <laughs> act very funny. But with sugar and flour, you can behave very proper among other people. But as I did, I went home and I had my stash and I sat there and ate and ate and ate until I got sick. So when I asked people around me if they saw something during those years, they didn't see anything. So when I came out and started telling I'm a sugar addict, and told them how I ate, they still have a hard time believing me. Because, of course, I did that home alone. Because it is acceptable in our society. Yes. Where other addictions are unacceptable and illegal. Yeah, well, alcohol is pretty much the same, I would say. Yeah. Acceptable and, yeah. But not to be drunk. It's not acceptable to be drunk. So is it the same processes for the different types of addiction? Absolutely. And today, you know, we talk about addiction interaction disorder. And my 30 year in this field, addiction medicine, and doing this evaluation that I'm going to show soon that we did on you, is going to see, I've seen this so many times, it starts with sugar and flour in an early age, then it goes on to nicotine, this is common then, and then it goes on to alcohol. So most of us sugar and flour addicts we can't drink because we're also alcoholic. It could be other outlets like, you know, screens, gambling for money, relationships. It could be all kinds of things. And this professor at the Swedish University Hospital, his name is Stefan Brenner. He also said when they did a lot of research on the brain, they were the one that saw that gambling addiction is a chemical addiction, but it is your own chemicals like alcohol or opiate addiction. So they're all sort of chemical addiction because they all do the same havoc to your reward system. And you can become, if you're an addictive personality, which I call myself, you know. I am too, yeah. We can become addicted to most things if we don't treat the brain. And that's why I don't like that we have alcohol clinics and drug clinics. I think we should have addicted brain clinics, you know, and help people to get rid of all the outlets and not only take one at a time, because I see people suffer so much fighting one after the other, and it takes years and years before the blue dog is going to get big and loving. So my followers will know that one of my mentors that I've studied a lot, Dr. Gabor Matei from Vancouver, British Columbia and Canada, says the substance is not the issue. It's the pain that makes you seek the substance that is what we need to look at. So 
But I like, to, I like to comment on that. Go for it. When you are a sugar and flour addict, if you are uh, six months or one year and you get exposed to this drug and you have a sensitive brain, it doesn't take a pain or a trauma. I don't think that the trauma theory is one that explains addiction all the way. The one thing that I want to point out is that we should never underestimate the drug on our primitive 50,000 years genetic brains. Our brains are not made for drugs, period. So somebody is sitting right now listening to this and say, that looks like me. That's my behavior. Yes. Or I've already labeled myself as a sugar addict. Yeah. How do we know if it is an addiction or if it's not? Like, how do we make the difference between what is and what is not? Well, that is very important because we have three stages, you know, we have social users. Those are the people, you know, that they can eat sugar, flour, they can have a drink of alcohol and nothing happens. For them, these psychoactive substances are not charged whatsoever. They can have it or they can leave it. Nothing happens. They don't get any consequences. This is very important to understand. You have another stage, which is harmful users. I would think that that is lifestyle, it's culture, that they don't have any knowledge about what's good for you and what's not. They are the ones that are comfort eaters. You know, when you are unhappy, you eat a box of chocolate. When you're stressed, you eat ice cream or bread or whatever. They are more emotional eaters. The addict doesn't fit in any of those two. The addict is when something takes over your prefrontal cortex, your neocortex, you know, takes over your life and you start becoming run by this entity, this part of your brain that is driving you to do all these things. And that's addiction. And the best way to know today, there's a lot of screening instruments, many, many screening instruments. But I have together with a colleague created this instrument from instruments that we have on alcohol, subscription pills, and street drugs, where we can see for sure that this is an addiction. It is not harmful use. So it's a very structured interview that's called sugar. And the wonderful thing is that tomorrow I start the first international training with nine students. That's going to be certified and we're going to have some in Canada. And we have in Iceland, Israel, Australia, and United States. So for now, there is only people certified in Sweden since here is where I developed the instrument. But we're going to take it international because I think we have to dare diagnose. We have to dare help people to see if you're an addict. And something that baffles me, Stephanie, is that many say we shouldn't use the word addiction. And I say, wait a minute, we should call a spade a spade. Because if you try to call it something else, it might kill you because you don't get honest with what this is and you might not seek the right help. Because something else I see that a lot of people that are addicted try to go to people that are not trained in addiction. So they go into all kinds of therapy and methods and dietings and for years and years and years. And nobody's ever telling them the truth about their addicted brain. So I love to help people see, are you addicted or are you not? And then we can develop treatment methods from that. Awesome. And that's what we're going to do today. Yeah. So I want to like frame the next part of this workshop or this podcast with people listening in. 
So I've met Bitten almost a year ago, day for day now. And one of the things that she proposed to me from colleagues to colleagues is to run an assessment on me because as people know, if you're the first time listening to this, go back to some of my previous material. I'm very, very open about my journey in my relationship to food and my body. And I've talked not in depth, but I've talked openly about the fact that I've had other addiction in my life. So what I've decided to do in this podcast today is to share my assessment with you guys. So me and Bitten sat for almost nearly two hours and she asked me a long number of questions and she came up with what we're about to show you right now, which is my addiction journey, where I am today in comparison to where I was. So It's my raw and honest truth that I'm sharing with everyone here. And that's how what I do today was born from this journey. So from there, I'm going to leave it to you to take over, Bitten. Okay. So this instrument is about 70 questions. And each question is asked in in different ways, you know, like, have you ever done da-da-da? And if she said yes, or my client says yes, then I ask, has it happened the last year? Because we want to know if it is actual. And then if she say yes, then I asked her, when did it happen the first time? How old were you? So that's the background to how we later on develop the assessment that you're going to see now. I'm not going to show you the actual questionnaire, all the 70 questions, but this instrument is built up on the international criteria for addiction, ICD-10, WHO is doing. And now the 11th version actually is coming. So we're going to soon update it to ICD-11. The first thing that I look at with her, there was, are you an addict or not? And that's why I'm going to show you the checklist that is the first result that comes from the questionnaire. So here we go. And I'm going to take that up on here. So, so while Bitten looks for the assessment, for those listening on the podcast, quick reminder that the link for you to view the screens will be in the podcast show notes. Yeah. Okay, so this is just a structured checklist where we put the criteria for addiction and then we have one page for harmful use. So the rule is that if you have three symptoms spread in three or more criteria, on the addiction part, then you don't have harmful use because you're past that stage, right? And gone further into addiction. So when I did this on Stephanie, she had two symptoms on harmful use, but since I had looked at the criteria for what we call pathological use or sugar addiction, and here you can see that she had a lot of symptoms. A means last 12 months, and L means during a lifetime. So like if you would do this on somebody that has been drug-free for more than a year, it would be, yes, you're an addict, but okay, you're in remission, if you understand what I mean. So the number here, this is question 35. I'm just going to give one example, and you can look at this. Uh, Number 35, she had that symptom the last year, but the first time she had that symptom, she was 27 years old. So 27, it's age behind the A. And then we had A10 on some, A36, and so forth, and A37 and A37. So this is how I get her curve, you know. The 
age and the symptom. So a total, the summary here is that she has seven symptoms in four criteria, and that is sugar addiction, because you need three in three. Okay, so then you know that one. And from this, we transfer the information to something we called a sugar curve. And this is my favorite, favorite tool when I work with somebody for motivational work to help them see why was my life like it was, you know. And I understand where the client is in the stages. I can also help the client to tailor the best treatment method from the knowledge of the curve. So when we do this, we're very, very meticulous with not using people's names. You see what's standing here, SD7509, that's a Unicode. I don't have to tell you what that is because that's for the <laughs> certified people, but it is a code. So I don't put anyone's name on here for protection. And of course, you know, ethical reasons. Yeah. And that's why I've given my full permission to have this information. Absolutely. And I, I asked her very firmly, you really sure about this? And she said, yes. Yep. <laughs> She's a gutsy lady, you guys. <laughs> but anyway, as you can see on the left here, you have early stage phase one and some of the symptoms using more than intended to continue using more often longer use than intended to, increase tolerance, obsessed with food, keep a storage, and so forth. And you see the numbers here. The numbers are the questions in the actual interview. You also see up here we have a big A in red. A, last 12 months. A1, once last 12 months. And L, more than one year ago. So here's also how we can, you know, colder code the numbers so that somebody easier can read what's going on in their life. You see here, middle stage, memory lapses, unable to stop using, isolate, stop doing fun activities, stop going to school, emotional problems and so on, less time with family, friends. That's usually, the stage one is the internal battle we have between our blue dog and our red dog. And that starts usually very early in our life. I would think that in my case, it was between five to seven years of age when I was in that stage. And then from seven to 10 years of age, for many years, I was in stage two. And it was the last years, actually when I quit smoking, I dived into late stage. And I got all the, the problems you see down here, which are compulsive obsessive use, foggy brain, a lot of medical consequences, psychological consequences, could be depression, it could be anxiety, you name it. Withdrawal symptoms, trembling, blood sugar swings, using substitutes to avoid withdrawal. So here you get a help to see too that, because most people when they come to me, you know, they said to me, when they see their curve, they said, wow, I knew it was a problem, but I didn't know it was that bad. So this is the first step we take slowly into surrender. Because if you're an addict, unless you surrender, you can never find recovery because you're going to keep hiding it. You're going to keep fighting with the wrong tools. You're not getting anywhere. So surrender is, of course, a painful process, but 
as addiction specialists, we are trained to hold your hand and guide you through that process and help you be free from shame, all the stigma surrounding this illness. So the next is the curve, which is actually sort of the real summary. And as you see the color coding here, coding, you see that sugar is purple. And then if we do on somebody with alcohol, weight, benzodiazepines, depression, anxiety, nicotine, opiates, or all kinds of stuff, we could we use a different color. So right now, Bitten, we don't see any color for some reason. No, because it's going to come. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> it's coming. Remember when we looked at the checklist, we yeah. saw that the earliest age you had a symptom were 10 years old. So... Uh. So here, when you were 10 years old, Stephanie, you had two symptoms. Let me take the purple curve first for you guys. So after those initial two symptoms, nothing happened until you were 25 or 26 around, I think. And then you got two more symptoms at that age. And then you had a long period between 27, 26, 27, until you were 36. And then you had one more symptom. And we're talking about sugar addiction symptoms here. Absolutely. We're talking about symptoms in the ICD-10 criteria, the international addiction criteria. That's what we're talking about. And then at the age between 37, 38, you got two more symptoms. And remember, you had seven symptoms? Yeah. So here, the illness stopped. I would say that it was very exciting for me to do this with Stephanie, who is totally, totally open and so aware of her life and her problems and have worked so much. And you can actually see in the curve that she has really worked hard to arrest her illness because I'm going to show you the most common curve, and then you're going to see the difference where the curve just goes way, way, way down all the time in someone that haven't gotten, you know, work with themselves as you have done, uh, Stephanie. And as I remember, I told you that, wow, I can really see what you have done. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that is very exciting, I think. Also, we do a screening for anxiety, which is the gray line here. So we just note... When did you have the first symptoms of anxiety and when did you have the last symptoms of anxiety? And we draw a line there. And we did the same with depression, which is green. And we also looked at nicotine. So for for people listening, I've had anxiety since about the same time I started to use sugar. And depression came in in my late 20s, early 30s. Yes. And then nicotine started at 17. So on the visual, you'll see when you watch the video, you can see all those lines and how they interact together. Yeah, and nicotine is orange. And I started smoking in nursing school when I was 19 to lose weight, to stop my cravings from sugar, which I ate like crazy. So I did not you know, do it because it was fancy or I thought I would be popular or something. I only did it as a appetite curbing stuff and I don't know about you was that the same for you or for me it was actually in high school to be popular oh okay okay but I always with the cool kids 
Yeah. <laughs> Everybody that I do this on, and they have used nicotine or used nicotine, I ask them, why did you start? And most of them have the same reason as I did, to stop craving. I thought I would lose weight if I did, you know, that's a common. We didn't do a weight curve on you, but you can add a weight curve. But what I do when I sit with a client and I take the curve up like this, I talk a lot to them. Exactly. What happened here between the age of 26, 27 and to here? Uh, what did you do? Well, she smoked and that does have an appetite curber, you know, even if you didn't use it as that. But, you know, I also ask other people, you know, did you drink alcohol? Did you do this and that? Did you work much or did you exercise a lot and the interesting thing with people that are addictive personalities is that they can have a period where nothing happens on the curve here but then they started doing other things they started drinking or exercising or they fell in love or something so when i work with people we go through all these phases and say what happened here at 37 when you dipped two symptoms what happened in your life and so for me, it's interesting, and this is where we're going to relate it for people listening to dieting. So between the age of 36 to 38, that's when I severely got obsessed with the way that I looked. And as a result of that, got into the whole hyper-controlling of food quality and macros, and, and it like just deepen my addiction and my binging behavior and over-consuming because I was so obsessed with getting the tin body and controlling my food and being perfect. That was at the beginning of my clinic work where I was a nutritionist and I could not avoid, avoid facing all the issues. So it made it worse for me. That is extremely interesting because we know that dieting and obsession is just going to make the illness much worse. And yes, during it did. Part, you, know, you had three more symptoms. That's yes. when your curve really dipped here. Yes. Extremely interesting. So when I go through the results with the client, we talk about their whole life. You know, what happened here? What happened there? What did you think there? And what did you do instead? And so forth. So you really get to see your whole life in the view of this addiction, how it controlled your life, how it gave you a lot of negative consequences. And that's a very relieving process. It's a cleansing in a way, you know, and you can actually see that you were a victim. You didn't cause this havoc on yourself. And that's the way you can start going backwards. Surrender is very beautiful, I think. I think it's a beautiful word too, because that's when you start all over and you start going a different way. And that's the last part. When you see the last part of the curve from between 37 and 38 up to now, yeah. that's the piece of surrendering. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very, very clear. Mm -hmm. So it can really be shown. And I like to show you a curve too, the most common curve on people I do, which haven't had the chance to do what you have done and haven't done that work. So if you look here, you see the most common curve on a client here. And Okay, the lines don't come the way I want them. But anyway, you see the purple up here? Yep. We go the purple first. You can see that this client, she started to eat sugar when she was 15, but actually it wasn't until she was 21 that she had her first symptom. That's pretty, pretty rare. The curve is very common otherwise, but 
Uh, usually this starts much earlier, four, five, six years of age when you have the first symptom. But look at what's happening. It goes rapidly downhill. And you can also see here that this is a very progressive disease. And you can also see that anxiety came pretty late in her addiction when she was 28. And depression came around 26. But mm -hmm. look at her weight curve. Mm -hmm. You can see that when the sugar curve goes downhill, her weight is going way up. And this is also something, you know, that people find very shocking because if you're addicted, you have sort of a foggy brain where you don't connect the dots. And it can be very frustrating to not understand that no matter what I do, you know, I don't get anywhere. So here you can see. It's finally here at age of 46 when her addiction gets arrested. That's when her weight starts going down. And that's when she started to work within your model of healing. Yeah, she started to do the holistic treatment. Absolutely. That's pretty phenomenal difference. Yes, absolutely. But you see, you don't go backwards. You don't go up because the symptoms you had, you just arrest it because it's a chronic illness. Absolutely. So that's what I wanted to show you guys. So what is your approach? So let's recap this. We've explained what addiction was and what it wasn't, right? The three different stages of addiction, social use, harmful is the second, and addiction. Addiction, yeah. And then we now know that there is an assessment tool in the same way that we assess any other addiction. There's an assessment tool. That's what Bitten has shown you. She's yeah, got... The go important thing too is that nobody would go to the doctor with a bump in your, your chest and they just touch the bump and then they do big surgery on you. They do further evaluation and assessment. And that's what we addicts should have we should be that respected and have that in our life and you do have currently mainly there's not a lot of assessment of sugar out there i think is there any other one than you well i have trained i've certified a whole bunch of people in sweden but not internationally that class starts tomorrow perfect and they will be certified sometime very beginning of december so we're helping Bitten expand internationally here by sharing her work out of Sweden. So Bitten has a number of books. She has website. But right now, if you go to anything, it's all in Swedish. Yes, so but it, it is almost done. We have tr translated the first and it's going to come. <laughs> the book or the website? Both. Both. Okay, awesome. I'm working on both. I'm working on both. So yes. it's coming to us here in the English-speaking world, but we're helping her. So she's certifying people. So if you reach out to her and we'll have her information, she'll be able to direct you to international assessor. But what I'd like to know is then what? So what does your treatment look like at a high level? Okay. I believe in cold turkey. I believe in first determining the sugar and flour product, as I call the drug. What is the drug that triggers you, that kicks you off? And then we go cold turkey on that. And I replace that with natural whole food, you know, real food, no processed food, nothing that has a lot of ingredients, but plain food. And we teach people in the beginning how to detox, what to use instead, how to curb cravings. We have all kinds of you know, supplements and tools that we can use 
to curb craving because your red dog in your brain doesn't give up just because you cut it the first day. So it will take at least three weeks, at least three weeks for some people more to start feeling stabilized. And then we work a lot with relapse prevention. To get somebody drug free and detox, that's pretty easy. <laughs> but to let them out there in the world where you have the drug everywhere, <laughs> people have stressors and they are mommies and they work and they do all kinds of stuff. Stress, of course, is a very, very big thing. So I like to help people see what is your risk situations. I train people in knowing the risk situations and then problem solution. How do you solve it? Very simple, actually. You talk to people that have done this before you. So like I would say to you, you know, what do you do when you travel? How do you do on an airplane? If this was your problem, what would you do? And I might ask several people, what would you do? What would you do? So relapse prevention. And then I help people see their warning signs and not the obvious one. You know, I'm pissed. I'm tired. <laughs> Everybody knows that. It's more like the deep patterns you have, you know, things like I never feel good enough. So I have to take care of everybody else or I have to be the best perfectionistic person in the world and ambitious and blah, 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 blah. All those compensation strategies we all have, you know, we do. And then if you keep this pattern up, what's going to happen? Well, you're going to get stressed inside. You're going to get tired. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to start getting angry. You know, when you feel like, God, it's difficult to soar like an eagle when you fly with turkeys, you know, that kind of stuff. So we teach people to start looking at that because those are early hidden warning signs. Then you might come down to the ones I feel overwhelmed. I'm angry all the time. I have sleep disturbances. My stomach goes haywire. I feel hopeless. I feel miserable. I have anxiety. I have guilt. I have shame. Ba -da -da -da, you know. I feel like a victim. Those are very easy to detect. But then we help people detect strategies. And the funny thing, you know, when I work with people, they always think that, okay, I'm going to stand in front of a mirror and say, I'm good enough. I'm good enough. <laughs> I say, wait a minute. <laughs> this pattern has been with you your whole life, darling. You have to start from the bottom. You have to start being drug free. What do you do next time you feel hopeless? When you feel sorry for yourself, when you're angry at the world, what do you do then? So we work with self-help groups. I used to say that I like to connect people. So I have people that are in 12-step programs. They can take people on as sponsors. Mm -hmm. I have people that are not, but they are sort of ambassadors or helpers. And what they do is they go in the dark with this person that feels vulnerable and skinless, you know, sort of the new chicken. And they take them by the hand and they guide them out in the light. That's what I call it. So mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be a special kind, but since I grew up with many 12-step groups, that is very familiar language for me. But it, what it means is to never judge anyone, to always open your arms, to always be this person, take somebody by the hand and lead them. So that's what I like it to be, you know. And that's Help. where our work intersects in which, yeah. right? So when we met, that's where I saw the intersection of our work because Bitten will assess the true addict and yeah. help them guide them get quote unquote clean of, because that's what addiction is. Addiction is 
when you first need to get clean of the substance and all the consequence in the brain. But then there's the, what bitten, that's the red dog, but there's also the blue dog, right? The spirit and the soul that also drives the behavior of addiction that we need to heal. And that's what we do in the going to beyond the food method. When you looked at my curve and you see the surrendering there, that's what I did. I, that's how the going to beyond the food method came through my own healing and, and figuring out what I needed to do to help my own hand and get to the light, right? And to see that I wasn't good enough. Absolutely. I'd like to add one thing, but it's included. I work with something called biochemical repair, yes. where you go in and do special treatment to help people restore energy after being down in the pit with the drug in order to have the both physical and mental horsepower to do the changes you were talking about. And, you know, we have a saying which, you know, fits exactly what you're saying. First, it isn't about the food. Well, we don't think it is the food that's a problem. We think everything else is a problem until it is about the food. And here's where I come in and help you. Is it the food that's your problem? Until it isn't about the food. <laughs> until we're back to it's not about the food. And that's Stephanie. <laughs> So I'm going to ask a question here because I hear that a lot in certain circles, in certain groups, where people self-assess themselves as addict, and then they clean themselves, like they go cold turkey and they eliminate everything, and then they adopt this way of eating that removes the sugar from their life, and then they relapse. And then they say, oh, it's my addiction that's gaining power back on me. And then they go back up again. They eliminate, go to Turkey last two months. And then they go back. And then they spend this life like up and down like this. What's up with that? And is that the right approach? It's not the right approach. And it's very, very dangerous because you're going to exhaust your body. You're going to get adrenal fatigue. You're going to get insulin resistance. You're going to get a lot of neurotransmitter imbalances in your brain. Our bodies is not made for going this on off. And actually what it is, it is a symptom of addiction that they don't recognize. It is the black and white thinking and I can do it myself. You can't do this yourself. You know, it's like trying to lift yourself in the hair. Forget it. You need somebody. And also the difference between psychotherapy in the psychotherapy, you're very respectful to the client and say things like, what do you think? How would you like to do this? When you're an addiction counselor, because of the red dog being such a charming creature, fooling the person that has it, you can't do that. You have to point with your whole hand. Some people don't like that, but I said, but listen, I'm an expert at this. Do you think you can run the show yourself? No, you can't. Do as I tell you, and I promise you, you're going to get out of the jungle. And here is the thing, you know, which is a confusion between how you work with psychotherapy where you listen and let people themselves come up with things. Because in addiction, that doesn't work. You have to tell people what to do first. Then they have to change the behavior first. And then they have to start doing the listening to their feelings. And in the beginning, you have false feelings due to your crazy biochemistry. So you can't even trust yourself. So you need somebody that dare take the lead and say, hey, come on, now you do this. That's why I joke and say, I'm the Cesar Milan of dealing with the dog. <laughs> and that is the difference here, because you can't trust your feelings, you can't trust your thoughts, because they are warped due to the addiction. Awesome. So that is very dangerous, Stephanie. So people should ask for help. 
it doesn't have to be, they have to be in a treatment facility. They can do it online, but they need to ask somebody that has the experience and the training and the knowledge to get out of the jungle. And I know that was the case for me. I spent a lot of time, invested a lot of time, a lot of mentors, a lot of testing, a lot of doctors, a lot of people to get me to where I am today. It didn't happen that I just flipped the switch on and it was done. There was an investment, a commitment to my healing in all forms of it. There's a lot of people that money is a trigger. When we say investing, they say, well, I don't have money. Well, it's not necessarily about money. It's about time and it's about committing. Action. Yes, absolutely. Doing. So I have a question here from somebody listening on Facebook and she's asking, what are your thoughts between traditional sugar and erythrol, for example? Okay. When it comes to addiction, we trigger on anything sweet because that will trigger our taste buds and they goes up to the brain. So I get a lot of questions like this. Why do I compulsively eat the low-carb keto dessert? Why can't I stop? Because, you know, I use stevia, erythrol, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And I said, because anything substitute lookalike is not going to work on us because our wiring is in that way. So bread doesn't work on us, bread by anything else than wheat. Bread-like products, pasta-like products, uh, sweet-like products, we're going to trigger and relapse. That's just the name of the game. Sorry. So as soon as we detect a taste of sweet, that it is sweet or not, bingo. Even if it looks like bread, it's going to trigger. If it looks like a cookie, it's going to trigger. The looks. Just the visual. Yes, absolutely. And if you go to the cinema and you smell candy, this is called cue-induced cravings. And we need to learn a lot about that because in the beginning, we're very sensitive. We go to the cafes or whatever. Things are going to move in our head. Uh, when we see these things, actually, insulin is going to start racing and your blood sugar is going to go down. So the craving is going to hit you like that. So this makes it tricky. So there is science behind that. Is that what you're saying? Yes. yes. That is my clinical observation. That is my life observation. And it is the journey of my student is exactly what you're expressing there. And I've had so many people tell me it's impossible. So Bitten just said, it is, we are being triggered by the smell, the eyes, and then that is why sugar substitute will still trigger people who have addiction to sugar. Thank you very much for that piece of information. Okay. That's all for the question that we have, but I'm sure the listeners that are on the podcast right now listening will have a ton of questions. So you're welcome to DM me on Instagram or send us an email at info at stephaniedosie.com and and we'll find a way of answering your question. I want to thank you for coming live with me here on Facebook and sharing this beautiful work that is going to help a lot of people that needs to get out there. And that's why I'm so passionate about sharing Bitten's work because it needs to get out to the world. Right now, it's like limited to Sweden. (laughs) So we need to help her in any way possible to get the work out to the world. Well, actually, I'd like to point out too that I'm in the, on the board for foodaddictioninstitute.org and there is a lot of information there too that you can start access. We have a new website, 
So, and more will come. So it's starting to come. Yeah. So yeah. when you have those counselors certified, let me know. And then we'll find a way of sharing them as well. Right away. I'll send you the list. I promise. Perfect. Thank you very much for having been with us. And I want to thank the listener as well. And we'll keep being connected and share this information with people. Thank you guys. Bye. Take care. Bye-bye. So I hope this episode unable you to understand addiction at another level. I highly encourage you to go see the video so you can see the slides and particularly my own assessment and how the going to beyond the food method healed what was considered a clinical addiction. And you can like see it clearly on the slides that are being shown in the video. For those of you who are still on the fence of saying, I don't know if I want to try this. I think it's a great place when we see visual, like how it works and how the going to beyond the food method can help you as well. If you did enjoy the show, I would really appreciate if you leave us a review. You can leave a review right from your smartphone in iTunes, or you can go to stephaniedoze.com slash review, and that's going to take you directly to the review site. Let me know if the episode helped you, and if so, how. I would really appreciate and Also, if you know someone that may be struggling with addiction of any kind, that could be a great episode to share with that loved one or your friend or that person that you know that's likely not having this information for them. I love you and I look forward to see you on the next episode. Do you eat for other reason than hunger? Maybe eating because you are stressed, frustrated, bored, or because you think you deserve it. I struggled with craving, overeating, and even binging on healthy food, no matter what diet I was on. Keto, paleo, organic, whole food, nothing stopped it. And maybe you feel the same. Tired of dieting, over-exercising, and yet another fad program. Or maybe you're overeating and binging and wish you could just be a normal eater. I thought I was alone. I was sick and tired of being a victim of my food urges. Who wouldn't be? Do you feel stuck with your eating and body right now? I want you to know one thing. You are not alone. You aren't broken. If food hasn't been going the way you've planned, know this. It is not your fault. Sadly, most women keep repeating the cycle of yo-yo dieting because they rely on old strategy like restriction, discipline, and the worst one of all, willpower. Perhaps you believe in eating more intuitively and would love to trust yourself around food, but are afraid of trying because honestly, you just don't trust yourself or worse, you've tried before and you fail. So that's why I want to peel back the curtain and show you exactly how I change my relationship to food and the one of my client going from overeating, binging and emotional eating to food freedom. And quite frankly, It is completely different from anything you've heard before. Claim Your Food Freedom is a 21-day journey to dissolve the hidden blocks 
the emotional blocks that keep you stuck. And finally, stop sabotaging yourself with food. Claim Your Food Freedom is a four-step mapping process that will take you from where you are now to food freedom. You see, everything will change the moment you are willing to see beyond the food and understand why you eat. It's about transforming why and how you eat so what you eat becomes easy, natural, and peaceful. Health, well-being, self-confidence, satisfaction, and success are all byproduct of you looking beyond the food to unlock your food freedom. Plus, I'll coach you on specific roadblock that may get in the way from you being free from food. Probably the things that made you fail before. The constant hate on your body, the all or nothing attitude, aka perfectionism, fear of failure, or even shame. And lastly, time management. If you are ready to step into a new version of yourself that eats normally and is at peace with food and maybe even your body, head over to www.claimyourfoodfreedom.com and I'll see you on the other side. I have created an audio training entitled How to Change Any Eating Habit, specifically the one that is sabotaging you. Three strategies to create the consistency and confidence you need to change your eating habit without willpower or discipline. I did this in order to help women like yourself engage with food in a completely different perspective so that they stop craving, overeating, binging, and using food to feel better. You can put an end to the cycle of frustration, the all or nothing mindset and shame towards your own body and become a motivated, consistent, focused and self-loving version of yourself. This free audio training is about the why we eat, how we eat, so that the what we eat can be easy, effortless and pleasurable. So if you are ready to step into the new version of yourself so that you can change how you interact with food, head over to stephaniedodzie.com slash training right now.